0: Last week, we began looking at the first chapter and a half of the Gospel of Luke. We're just going to be looking at the first chapter and a half, so all the way through first chapter, and then halfway through the second chapter, we'll come to what is traditionally called the Christmas story, Lord willing, on Christmas morning this year. It's here in the Gospel of Luke that we have the account of Of the story that changed the world. Luke has been, you'll remember, compiling a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He says that in chapter 1 verse 1. This is the story that changed the world. The story that changed the world is a story of what God accomplishes in human history. And I want you to remember that. The story that changes the world is a story of what God accomplishes in human history. It's a story of what God accomplishes in time and space. And in order to compile that narrative, in order to compile that story, Luke begins with the account of the birth of one man named John. He was the baptizer. John the Baptist. Today our text is found in Luke chapter 1 Verses 5 through 25. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. I'm going to read that text for us now. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the day, in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. One of the first questions that we have to ask as we come to this kind of lengthy text this morning is why in the world Luke would begin the story that changed the world with an account of the birth of John the Baptist. You would think that he would begin the story... Maybe in a different way. Maybe with the pre-incarnate glimpse of Jesus Christ in heaven. Or certainly that he would begin with with Luke chapter 2 instead of Luke chapter 1. But I want you to remember the purpose that Luke has. He is wanting to compile a story, a narrative of all that God accomplished. He is compiling a narrative of what God accomplished in human history. History. So everything that we see here is going to be an account of what God has done. God is fulfilling something. God is doing something. Namely, he's doing what he said he would do. And that's what Luke is getting at. Now what we have here this morning is this scene with Zechariah and Elizabeth. uh, and, And it unfolds, or this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth... And it unfolds in three scenes. Now remember how we said last week that Luke is a a historian? And so almost everything that he does has historical markers, time markers. And that's how this scene, this story is going to unfold to us. There are three different parts or three different scenes in this story. Now let me show you where they they come. Verse 5, here's this marker. In the days of Herod. So that's first scene. In the days of Herod. If we were watching a play and you had the little sort of uh, bulletin or whatever it is, the the program before you, they would say scene one, colon, in the days of Herod. That's verse five. But then look down at verse uh, eight. There's the second scene. And again, there's a second historical marker. Now while, that's time, indicative of time. While he was serving. So first scene. In the days of Herod, second scene, while he was serving. Third scene, verse 24. Again, here's a time marker. After these days. So that's scene three. Scene one, verses five through seven, in the days of Herod. Scene two, verses eight through 23, while he was serving. And scene three, verses 24 and 25, after these days. Watch how this story just unfolds before you, and I hope that you're going to be as amazed uh, and joyful as I am having studied this. Let's look at what he says at this scene in the days of Herod, verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. Now you might say, well, this is just a brief text. What is there? there there's actually a whole lot here for us to, to take in, there's a lot that's important for us to understand so that we can understand the whole flow of the narrative. For instance, he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. That puts it in a political context for us, doesn't it? In the days of Herod, king of Judah. This Herod, there are many Herods in the Bible, but this Herod is Herod the Great, who ruled in the land of Palestine from 37 B.C. to around 4 B.C. He began ruling at the age of 22. He was known for his fabulous buildings and for his, his uh, architectural prowess, if you will. He was actually called the King of the Jews by Mark Antony, and he was supported by Rome. He was the one who was ruling when Jesus was born. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 2. Now, one of the things that Herod was famous for was he was famous for his brutality in the midst of his great suspicion, he is known for ordering the deaths of his brother-in-law, his wife, his mother, and for good measure, a few of his sons as well. He's a maniac. He wasn't a godly man at all. He was a degenerate man, degenerate man who was only ever a puppet in the hand of Rome. Merrill Tenney said this, he said, The last days of Herod were filled with violence and hatred. Antipater, his son, who had tried to accelerate his father's death in order that he might succeed the throne, suffered the same fate as his brothers. Augustus, to whom Herod appealed for permission to execute Antipater, remarked in a biting witticism that he would rather be Herod's hog than Herod's son. This guy was a maniacal, deranged ruler. You remember that it was Herod who called for the execution, quote, of all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. Imagine living under a political ruler who had lost his mind and is for the murder of infants. It it tells us a little bit about the political context. But he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest. I'll just stop there for a moment. That tells us a little bit about the religious context, or what I would say, the religious corruption. The religious corruption. In large part, there was religious corruption in the day uh, that Luke was referring to here. And you see this especially later in the life of Christ. But even now, when you read that priesthood, you have to understand that priests were actually buying and selling their positions. They were trying to move up the ladder, you know, the priesthood ladder. And and you know, later in the ministry of Jesus, there was this growing monetary trade in the temple that was actually taking place. There was, to, to put it bluntly, religious corruption of the highest order. There was jealousy, I mean... In the intertestamental period, there, there came about this, this group called the Pharisees, and then the, the liberals of the day were the Sadducees, and then together they were, you know, they were made up the leaders of the Sanhedrin. There was this constant struggle, power struggle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, quite a jealousy amongst them. And famously, the Sanhedrin was corrupt, the religious leaders, this this. Luke is telling us here about a little bit about the political context, a little bit about the religious corruption, but he's also telling us a little bit about the spiritual craving that that took place in this time. Why? Well, you know the history of Israel has been a long history. It's a long history of disappointment and difficulty and darkness. Remember, the history of Israel began with a a man named Abram who would be quickly called... Come the name of Abraham, but almost as quickly as he was called to believe God, the nation that he that itself, of which he would become the father, found itself in the midst of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, followed by 40 years of wandering in the desert. Then came a nearly decade-long conquest of Canaan, and then years and years and years of trying to occupy that land. That was followed up by the division between the kingdoms in the north and the south. And in 722, the northern kingdom was destroyed. And in 586, the southern kingdom was carried away to 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And when that Babylonian captivity had ended and the southern kingdom was allowed to come back to Israel, it wasn't long after that that they they were invaded by the Greeks. And after that, they were oppressed by the Romans. It's just this long history of repeated darkness, blessing and cursing. And as this story begins, we're told that it's in the days of Herod the king. You know something about the socio-political setting. You know something about the religious setting. But I want to tell you about the spiritual cravings at this time. Because ever since the ending of the Old Testament, 400 years, God had been silent. No prophet spoke for 400 years. It had been more than 500 years since there was ever a miracle in Israel. There were only a few periods. You have to remember, there are only a few periods in Israel's history during which miracles occurred because miracles are not the norm. I know our charismatic friends want us to think that miracles are the norm, but if miracles are the norm, are they really miraculous? Right? Miracle is something that happens that's not normal. All this to say, God had been silent. No prophet was speaking in Israel. No genuine uh, uh, demonstration of God's presence. It seemed like God wasn't doing anything. The Messiah had not come. There was a spiritual craving in the land by a few, a godly few, who were waiting for the salvation of Israel. You see something about the political context, something about the religious corruption, something about the spiritual craving. But then Luke brings our attention to this exemplary couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Really strange because Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth's name means the covenant of God. Taken together, we would say, as soon as you'd see the words, the name Zechariah and Elizabeth, you would think... The Lord remembers his covenant, but does it seem like God is remembering his covenant? No, because God's not speaking. There's nothing happening. Not only that, but Israel is oppressed by the Romans. Not only that, you've got this maniacal ruler who's killing babies. It doesn't seem like God's doing anything. So much time had passed, so many things happened, so many difficulties experienced, so much suffering endured. Does God really remember? And add to that, you've got this godly, righteous couple, old couple, and they have no children. Elizabeth was godly, even though she was barren. She waited on the Lord, even though the culture shamed her. They waited on the Lord, even though the culture shamed them and blamed them for 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 her barrenness, but together they 're called righteous. You see verse six, and they were both righteous before God. they believe God. Do you get the the, the force that 's being brought to us here there 's this old couple who had to go through all of the stigmas and the difficulties of being childless in an age when If you were, most people thought there was something wrong with you. Not only that, but they're living under a maniacal leader who only cared about himself, who was a murderer. They lived in a day of moral perversion when that was on the rise and when there was this ever-growing religious corruption among those who were supposed to be religious leaders in the land. And to top it all off, God seemed silent. And not only were they longing, they had longed for a child, I I think by now that longing was long past. But they were longing for God to to to, for God's salvation, for the for, for redemption to be brought to Israel, and it seemed like God was quiet. This exemplary couple, believing God, living for God in the midst when you think it'd be impossible, to me it's it's really encouraging that you can be godly and righteous in the midst of a pagan society in the days of herod just those verses we see something about the political context about the religious corruption about the spiritual cravings and about this exemplary couple in just those verses now the the lion's share of this text comes next and that's introduced by this next historical marker while he was serving as priest Verses 8 through 23. The story now, the narrative is unfolding, right? Because Luke is a good historian and he's an investigative reporter and he's just giving us the facts. He's telling us like it is. The story now zeroes in in this old godly couple. They were both from the priestly line. We can be sure that there were many others who were like them, who were godly and old, but there weren't too many. There were others, not too many. We'll, we'll encounter some of them later in Luke chapter 2, the end of Luke chapter 2. But our attention is directed here to, to them. And Luke wants us not just to think about this couple, but he wants us to think about one day in the life of this couple. Again, an investigative reporter. He 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 brought things out. He, he brought it down, and he's just telling us the story. The priests, and Zechariah was a priest, at that time were divided into 24 divisions, 24 teams. You can read about that, how that came about in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Basically, they rotated temple service twice a year for one week. It's probably as many as 18,000 priests. And because there were so many, that meant that you only had one opportunity in your lifetime to enter into the temple and to burn incense inside of the temple well Zechariah who happened to be of the order of Abijah who is one of Aaron's grandsons on a particular day they were all gathered together there there Abijah is chosen it's it's Abijah's turn to to go into the temple and what they would do is they would cast lots of the available priests to determine who would go in in the morning and who would go in in the evening to offer the incense, who go into the holy place to offer the incense. And they did that by lot. And it just so happened, Luke tells us, that the lot fell on Zechariah. This was an immense privilege. I mean, he lived his whole life and he would only get one opportunity at this. One opportunity in his lifetime to do that. He lived his whole life for this opportunity. And Zechariah would be the one to go and offer the incense. It's probably clear that this is not the morning Offering. This is the evening offering. What would happen is Zechariah would have two assistant priests and they would walk side by side with him, walk up the long ramp to the great altar to the burning uh, uh, off burnt offering altar. One of his assistant priests would take this this silver spoon and scrape some of the live coals off of the burning altar, the, 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 the burnt offering altar, scrape it into a silver pan. They'd walk back down the ramp and turn around and uh, Zechariah would have grabbed this bowl of sweet, uh, sweet aroma, sweet incense that he would take up with this golden bowl. And they'd walk together up the 12 steps to the door of the, the temple, to the door of the sanctuary. And there the three priests, Zechariah and two of his assistants priest, uh, priests on his side, they would actually enter the holy place of the temple. They would actually enter the holy place of the sanctuary. This was Nobody could do this but the priests. And on one side would be the menorah, and on the other side would be the table of showbread. And then directly in front of them, as they're going into the holy place, directly in front of them would be this veil with the image of cherubim woven on it. And that was dividing the holy place from the most holy place, the holiest of holies. And in front of that veil, there was this golden altar of incense. Now the three priests would approach that golden altar of incense. And one of them would take away the coals. They would clean it up, the the coals from the previous offering. And then the other assistant would place the new coals evenly on that altar. And then the two priests, the assistants would bow and back out and leave Zechariah there in the holy place, before the veil, before the golden altar alone, and he would place that golden incense that, 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 that incense on the altar, and the scent and the smoke began to rise, and it was a sign the Bible says it was a sign of the prayers ascending to God, and the people who were gathered outside would see the smoke. Uh, rising from inside and they would begin praying together you need to get a sense of that it's probably the evening sacrifice there's a, a large crowd gathered outside and they're all praying and i think they're probably all praying together for different things but maybe praying for god to send a messiah and while he was serving three things happened. luke's telling the story what happened well first an angel appeared. Amazing, this angel appeared on the right side of the golden altar. Now maybe you've studied this before and you've read commentaries and there's all these different reasons. Why on the right side, in this special da da, da. I'll tell you why it's on the right side, because it was on the right side. Luke is telling, Luke has done his homework, he's telling us, This is the story, it was on the right, there's there's nothing special about this. He was just there on the right side of the the golden altar in a haze of smoke. Luke is telling the story, leaving no stone unturned, giving us a true account of the details. And there standing is the angel Gabriel, the archangel, who we have not seen in the Bible since Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, he was announcing he was sent from God to answer Daniel's prayer regarding God's plan for the future. And Gabriel announced to Daniel God's plan regarding 77s, 70, 70 weeks of, of years that were decreed for the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem for six things to happen. He said 70 weeks are decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both prophet and vision, and to anoint the most holy place. One man summarized Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27 like this. He said the purpose of these verses is is to state three main truths to the Jews of Daniel's day. First, these coming 70 weeks of years would concern two occasions of the Messiah's appearance on earth. Second, at the first appearance, he would provide for the riddance of sin, which had necessitated their captivity, and replace it with righteousness. And third, in his second appearance, there would be a time of full application of this righteousness to the people. All that to say, the last time we saw Gabriel is in Daniel chapter 9, and it had... Great eschatological importance. And now he's there. And Zechariah sees him. And he's scared stiff. Fear grips him. Why? Because the Old Testament ended with these words. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Is this it? Is this God coming to to strike the land with utter destruction? Is this a message of judgment? God's not been speaking for 400 years. Is this now a message of divine judgment? An angel appears. That's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens. An announcement is made. What's the announcement? Verse 13. Do not be afraid, (laughs) Zechariah. Don't you just love that? Easy for you to say. (laughs) Don't be afraid. And I was in here alone and whammo, there's the angel, the archangel of God whom we haven't heard from in, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Easy for you to say, but the announcement is made. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and his name shall be called John. Lots of folks asking the question, what was Zechariah praying for? And most people think, well, he must have been praying for a son. I, I don't think that's the case. I think he was praying for the deliverer, he was praying for the Messiah. Because that's what you do when you're a priest, a godly priest, living in such pagan days. And all of a sudden, Gabriel comes with the same basic announcement that he made to Daniel your prayer has been heard. Gabriel says your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear you a son. This is God's plan being enacted, his plan of redemption being enacted. He's going to go before the Lord Jesus Christ and this son is going to announce the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to see a couple of things about this announcement. First he announces the reality you your wife will bear you a son, but then he announces something about His name. And you shall call His name John. The word name John means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. And it tells us something about the person and the work of this John who is to be born. He is, his, his nature, His character is to be, is to be taken with the, the grace of God. Think about this. John 1.29 Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells us about His reality. He tells us about His name. He tells us about His significance. You will have joy, Zechariah, and gladness because of Him. Many will rejoice at His birth. Why? Because He will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. He will have this amazing significance before the Lord. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven eleven, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then he adds this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. <laughs> what is his significance? He is significant because God will consider him to be great. If you ever want to know what God thinks is great, read the life. Of John the Baptist tells us something about his consecration he says he must not drink wine or strong drink this is a reference that the priest during the priestly duty had to had to with, with abstain from alcoholic beverage he he had to be completely committed to the Lord wine is a mocker strong drink is a is, is a brawler just stay away he, he's got to be completely consecrated to the Lord. He's given over to this. He not, he's not, doesn't have an opportunity to serve himself. It's an opportunity to serve God. His reality, his name, his consecration, and then his commission. He will turn many to the Lord their God. He's commissioned to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to God. And he'll go before him, he says in verse 17. In the power of Elijah. Keep your finger there just for a moment, and we're going to get down in the weeds a little bit, but I want to show you something. Look at John chapter 1, verse 21. John chapter 1, verse 21. And they asked John the Baptist, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. So Luke says, gives the report of what Gabriel says, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. They asked John, John chapter one, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. So what do we do with this? Is John Elijah or not? Answer, Matthew chapter 11. So turn back there now with me. Matthew chapter 11. The words of Jesus here. Matthew chapter 11 verse verse 7. Jesus is approached by some messengers from John the Baptist. Matthew eleven seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Interesting. That goes back to, back to Malachi 3, but then look at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So what about John the Baptist? Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, If you're willing to accept what? If you're willing to accept the testimony of the prophets, if you're willing to accept the testimony of John the Baptist regarding the kingdom of heaven, if you accept this message, that is to say, if you accept me as your Messiah, if that's the case, if you accept Jesus as the Messiah then John is figuratively fulfilling the prophecy regarding the coming of Elijah that's given in Matthew in Malachi 3, and more specifically in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. But John was not an actual resurrection of the real Elijah. In this way, John is an Elijah-like prophet. Who would powerfully, boldly, and faithfully, uncompromisingly proclaim truth? One man said this. So the angel says, There's coming one in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's the Elijah that Malachi promised. He's coming to announce the arrival of Messiah. And Jesus says, If you believe the message, if you believe the gospel, if you believe me, he will fulfill that Elijah prophecy. He will be like that, he will be that Elijah like prophet. But that leaves, this man goes on to say, that leaves room for another thought. What if they don't believe? Because most didn't. They didn't. And therefore, even though John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, there must yet be a future fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy before the great and terrible day of the Lord before Jesus comes to destroy the ungodly and to set up His earthly kingdom, there will be in that day before He arrives another Elijah-like prophet. And I think probably Revelation 11 speaks to that of the two witnesses. But if you receive the Gospel, you receive the testimony of John the Baptist, you receive the message about the Messiah, in that way... He has fulfilled this Elijah-like prophecy to, turn, to prepare the people for the Lord. And that's what true greatness is in God's eyes. Muhammad Ali thought he was great. He said, I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock them down, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, the most scientific, and the most skillfulest fighter in the ring today. He said he was the greatest, but I'll tell you, one who is great in God's eyes is the one who prepares a people for the Lord. One who himself or herself is prepared for the Lord. That is one who is great in God's eyes. One who is committed and consecrated to God's commission J.C. Ryle said it this way, he said, The child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key to religious knowledge which the patriarchs and the prophets never enjoyed, not even John the Baptist. You see. So an angel appears and an announcement is made. The third thing that happens here is an assurance is given. Back in Luke chapter 1, I think it's ironic that the gospel, which is written to provide certainty, begins with the account of someone's doubt. Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, How shall I know this? And the angel Gabriel says, I am Gabriel? Duh. Is this how shall you're talking to an angel before the holy curtain? And you're saying how shall I know this? I'll give you an assurance. You're going to be mute. You're going to be deaf and mute until this prophecy is fulfilled. I I was sent from the very presence of God to tell you this good news and you respond like that? Zechariah, what gifts? And I'll tell you, I'll give you an assurance, you will know surely about this because you'll be deaf and mute until it comes about. You see, he was supposed to, and and then that just, that's it. Um, He says in verse 21, the people are waiting for Zechariah, they're like, you know, it doesn't take a whole long time, they're wondering what happens, and as he comes out, he's supposed to stand at the doorway and announce the blessing to the people, number 6. Uh, Twenty-four. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But he didn't say anything. And all the people are, this is really weird. What's happening? Why is he not speaking? And he's making these signs, which that's why we say he was not only mute, but he was deaf. He, he was making signs with his hands trying to explain to them what had happened. And then they realized, I don't know how he did that. How he, met through these signs, they realized that he had seen a vision. I mean, like he's pointing and then he's doing this. And then he's doing like all that kind of, just imagine what that must have been like. And he's deaf and mute. He gives them this assurance. So in the days of Herod, you see the story unfolding. Um, While he was serving. And then verse 24. After these days, that's the third and final scene. After these days, he points out two things. One, there's a miraculous conception, and two, there's a mar- marvelous intervention. The miraculous conception. I didn't talk about the, 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 the uh, immaculate reception, 1972, Franco Harris, right? December 23rd, Pittsburgh Steelers. This is not, okay, thanks, John. This is the miraculous conception. They're both old. Look, look at what happens here. Elizabeth is barren. She's, she's, she's beyond menopause. He's old. But the words are very clear. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. You say, how did that happen? You know how it happened. Biology is involved. They had a marital relationship together. Right? They were old, but they weren't dead. But there's something miraculous about this conception. She was beyond childbearing age. He hadn't been able to produce children. And he went into her, and she conceived. After years. And I don't know how this came about in terms of how Zechariah communicated this to his wife Elizabeth. But they knew that this was not just the birth of their son. It was the accomplishment of God. Luke says, I compiled a narrative of all that has been accomplished among us. I don't know how other than to say that that I I can imagine Elizabeth trying to think about this and I can imagine her thinking, all I know is my husband can't hear or speak, but he keeps making these signs about an angelic being. And the next thing you know, even though we're old, the next thing you know, I'm pregnant. A miraculous conception. But then there's this marvelous intervention because all it says is verse 25 or the end of verse 24, she hid herself. Why? I don't know. For so long being the stigma, bearing that stigma, and, and if she goes and tells people she's pregnant, everyone's going to call her crazy. So she just hides herself for five months until it's, until it's very obvious, right, that she's pregnant. And she said, but here's what God did. God has done for me something. You see, what happens is Elizabeth becomes, in this way, a picture of Israel, a picture of you and I. God has done, what explains this? I can tell you about biology, but I don't want to just tell you about biology, I want to tell you about theology. God has intervened. And done something and accomplished something in my life that can only be explained as being from Him. Luke says, Theophilus, I want you to know all that has been accomplished in our midst. Well, the gospel is about what God has accomplished, isn't it? And here's where He began. He fulfilled that which was said, that's what he, which he said he would do through Malachi the prophet. And you need to understand that there were years. There weren't just years, there were decades. Not just decades, but there were centuries of time without any clear indication that God was doing anything. Have you ever experienced that? Well, none of you have ever experienced centuries in which you felt like God wasn't doing anything. But certainly you've experienced days, months, years, maybe most painful of all, moments when it seemed like God wasn't doing anything. Yet you can know. this. Luke wants you to know. God wants you to know with certainty that that which He has promised, He will most certainly accomplish. This is not a health and wealth gospel. This is not a prosperity gospel. This isn't about your best life now, this is about something far, far greater. He will most surely conform you to the image of His Son in spite of the suffering. In fact, through the suffering and through the stigma that you endure day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you can be sure that He will. Even though things around you don't seem like it would be possible. Oh, look, look at all these things that preventing God from doing. You got a maniacal leader who kills babies, who's out of his mind, and a, religion, a corrupt religious priesthood. And you have all the. Yeah, and God does his work, and you can rely on him. So let me take three things from today. And, there, and maybe there are other things you want to take, but this, these three. One. God is faithful to do what He said He will do. Let me say something to those of you who have never committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never repented of your sin and believed on Him. God is faithful to do what He said He'll do. He will surely forgive your every sin if in repentant faith you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will do that. And He's also faithful. You you receive John as an Elijah-like messenger. But if you don't, there's coming other messengers. Other messengers who will precede the coming of the great and awful day of the Lord. And you will suffer the wrath of God. So God is faithful to do what He said He will do. Second, God uses prayer and people to accomplish His work. That's stunning to me. you got these these. Common everyday people. And God's going to do his work, but he does it through an old couple. He does it through the prayers of God's people. That's how God works. That's amazing. And third, be ready. Be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? The, the, the great and awful day of the Lord is coming. Christ Himself is coming. You would do well to be ready today by repenting of your sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and looking to Him with all your heart. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a, a hymn. It's an old hymn that I was reminded of this morning. And I love the words this. I don't know that I've ever paid attention to the words before. But the first lines go like this, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take Him at His word, (laughs) just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. You have God's word on what He has promised to do. Amen? We'll pray, but as we get ready to pray, those who are following the Lord and Believer's Baptism, you can be dismissed to go get ready and I'll join you in just a few minutes and then we'll all join together uh, in Helder Hall. Let's pray together.